is. Good evening slash morning slash whatever it is for you, uh, respectively, everyone. Servus. Morning. Evening. Hey, how does it feel to do two live streams in one day? Uh, it feels uh, pretty exhausting, to be honest. Uh, this is my Sunday, actually, and I've um, had a yeah. really, really uh, pretty full-on day, but it's been good. Um, I uh, had the Q&A stream on the politics server early this morning, uh, which was which was fantastic. Uh, a lot of people over there had some pretty hard-hitting questions, and I think that's uh, probably something full of people that all they do is sort of sit there and talk about politics all day. Did so. they ever get to my question? Uh, no. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think I left before then, to be honest. I, I don't actually know... Um, what your question was it was the if you were stuck on an island with a briefcase uh, or if, if you were stuck on an island and you could bring one item uh, why would you bring a briefcase full of gold or, or the question was what would you bring and why is it a briefcase full of gold wow uh, uh, I definitely didn't ask that question your, I think you could yeah. just tie it to your leg and then sink it yourself because you're not going to get off that island exactly yeah did anyone ask you about gold gold bugs and all that and uh what are your views on uh, well, gold is a rare material so yeah what, what, that is did anyone ask something you, in it? what your view was on uh uh asset or um currency back uh no no to be honest they were sort of more um focused on sort of well i guess it, it's probably by the nature of the channel um, they were sort of more focused on uh, economic sort of thoughts and sort of their uh, representative political ideologies, yep. I suppose, uh, which makes sense, you know, it's a politics surprised. server. Um, it's not necessarily there to talk about, I don't know, what economic system is, is best or, or whatever that may be. They were very specifically um, in and about. Uh, yeah, so much more questions on sort of schools of thought, which... Uh, you know, to be honest, historically, I freaking hate, I hate sort of subscribing to, oh, you know, this, this school's a thought's the only one that's worth uh, subscribing to, you know, ignore everything else. Because uh, I don't think that's necessarily the way, but you all know that. Um, hopefully I sort of enlighten some new, uh, some new people to the idea of that as well. Uh, but anyway. If I, wanted, if I wanted to be cheeky, I could say everybody was, uh, was saying, please, e, confirm my biases. Please confirm my preconceived bias. Ah, yeah, well, you know. It's all Wait, nice, isn't mute, it? Do you mean people right now, or am I unmuting? Alrighty. Um, so I guess we'll get stuck into the Q&A for this one, because uh, as Captain Locke sort of so uh, graciously pointed out, this is my second Q&A for the day. Uh, and I've been up all day sort of, well, actually, uh, sort of breaking free of quarantine here in Australia, which is kind of nice, because uh, they've sort of relaxed restrictions for the first time in a long time. So uh, I went out uh, sailing with my dad, which was lovely. Um, Oh. Yeah, but a very sort of full-on day, and I am just so, so ready to, to curl up into bed and um, go into some <laughs> kind of sleep-deprived coma. Um, but that's all right, of course. Um, I will be here for you guys. So if I do sort of, um, you know, go MIA and the, the live stream's still going and you hear sort of faint snoring in the background, you, you know what's happened. Um, but I'll try and keep it together as much as possible. Now, with that out of the way, um, this is sort of, I guess, we'll, we'll start off with the standard housekeeping stuff. Um by default, uh, if you guys could mute your microphones um, just until you have a specific question to ask, uh, we really appreciate it because it means that we avoid a lot of the background noise that, that happens by default if, uh, if I'm talking and you're live streaming and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it really helps out so we don't have to interrupt to go and play whack-a-mole with people's hot mics. Um, so yeah, if you could do that by default, it would be fantastic. Uh, now, of course, if you do have a question, um, feel more than free to unmute yourself and you know speak up. Uh, but if we do have to close your mic down, we do have to manually mute you, uh, you will be muted for the rest of the, um, the Q&A session um, until, uh, you know, the one sort of later this week. So, uh, I don't know, take that as a warning, if you will. Now, um, the um, sort of standard sort of procedure beyond that uh, is... <laughs> the standard procedure about that is Captain Locke would normally give us a nice detailed breakdown of what it is that we're going to be talking about, the questions that we're going to ask. Uh, but I think he sort of hit the nail on the head where he sort of said, uh, this was more of a historical topic um, where we're sort of weaving through, um, you know, different points of history and how it applied to um, the economy of ancient Rome, which I think is probably um, very, very interesting. But 
Um, of course, there were sort of some key points and maybe we can stick to the, the subtitles or the subchapters in the video. Um, but of course, um, if you do feel the need to ask something that you think is related to the topic uh, or even something that's a little bit off topic, uh, at the end of the day, that's what we're here for. We like to keep it relatively casual. So um, without further ado, I hope you guys enjoyed the video. And does anyone have a question about it? Ooh, ooh, I have a question. Go ahead. So uh, what is it? Um, since uh, Emperor Tiberius basically caused a recession and then fixed it by printing more money, does that like the Federal Reserve, and he did it before the Federal Reserve thought it was cool, does that mean it was a pro gamer move? Uh, well, I mean, sure, why not? I'm sure that's exactly what he was after. Well, uh, did Tiberius actions like set a precedent for future economic recessions or was it like a one-time thing? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, and I suppose for the, you know, the, the best sort of thing that we can sort of say is, uh, unfortunately we don't really know. Uh, Cause of course recessions back then were far fewer and further between than what we have today, where of course we have sort of our um, our debt cycle where it's just sort of, you know, once every, um, you know, 10 years or so, we're going to go into a recession almost like clockwork. Uh, back then, of course, you know, debt lending was far, far smaller part of the economy and the economy was far less uh, developed. Now, I actually know the answer to that question because I had to write a paper on ancient recessions in uh, college. So um, actually, the thing is with um, the Roman Empire is very, uh, what is it? Um, uh, unique in that sense that they handle how they handle with their sessions in that way because you'd saw that in most ancient empires and uh was it on um, nations uh when the recession hit or even it was globally if it wasn't just nationwide uh it would be hard the the emperor or the leader would be hard pressed to ever take any action against it they probably just they, most of the time they just let it go and um just let the economy deal with it then let the like the people um deal with the hardy part blow of the economic backlash well there you go uh and okay so an important sort of side note to that is is oftentimes um you know downturns economic downturns back then uh we're not like economic downturns here where it was sort of a demand side thing uh most often it was sort of supply side shocks because we just they just didn't have as developed uh financial infrastructure as we have today uh which means that the actual sort of uh, shit went wrong on the actual sort of production side rather than the the thinky thinky feeling side which is uh, which is the demand side um, but yeah it's a fantastic question the answer is is unfortunately no um, because it was a really rare occurrence um, and yeah they were just sort of didn't really sort of have the experience they just kind of you know happened to, to luck into it I suppose oh I got a question too uh, what are your thoughts on the grain doll that Rome in implemented? The what, sorry? The grain doll. Where they gave the poorest citizens of Rome uh, food. Oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah, sorry, I thought you said, I thought you said um, like a... Never mind. Um, I'm very tired. But uh, yeah, so I only looked at this briefly in my research. Um, and uh, of course, it's sort of one of those things where we could find a point to it as one of the earliest forms of social welfare, right? Um, you know, the idea that, hey, look, you know, we have sort of members of our society that are poor. Um, instead of letting them starve, why don't we just give them food? Uh, and it seems reasonable enough. It almost sort of seems uh, like a no-brainer to most of us here in the modern world today. Uh, but back then, that probably would have been a, you know, a relatively sort of significant move. Uh, and you sort of have to know, especially considering how valuable food was back then. Uh, you know, food was the lifeblood of an economy uh, in, you know, throughout most of human history. And the idea that you just sort of give food to someone uh, was, was incredible. Uh, now we sort of take it for granted today, but, um, you know, uh, it was uh, pretty probably a pretty significant move back then. And I suppose it had its advantages, the same advantages that, you know, um, social security, social welfare have in our modern world. Uh, you know, the sense that, hey, people were probably much less likely to uh, rebel and overthrow um, their glorious leaders if, you know, they were contented and fed. Uh, something, something, food and circuses, bread and circuses, right? I have a question. Beautiful, go ahead. Uh, uh, it's more related to the economy today. Uh, 
Do you think we're heading toward? What do you think? Do you think we're heading towards a recession or a depression? Yeah, so it's a really interesting one, um, and of course, it's speculation. You know, my opinion on the matter is no more valid than um, than anyone's uh, opinion on the matter, and it's probably no more valid than a chimpanzee throwing darts at a board, because uh, you know, there's so many variables that it really is impossible to determine. Uh, and it ultimately also depends on sort of how you categorize each of those individual um, things. Now, a recession is normally two periods of negative economic growth, um, so two quarters of, of negative economic growth, and a depression is sort of one of these more sort of um, airy-fairy things, and, and people have sort of different definitions to what it exactly means. Um, but they tend to, you know, it, it, it's tend to be assumed that a depression is, is more severe uh, and longer sort of drawn out. Um, now, look, my opinion um, normally sort of errs on the uh, the more optimistic side, but this time, uh, well, this time I'm really not sure. Um, I think we're in a situation where a lot of people have a lot of debt. We're in a situation where a lot of people don't have a lot of savings. Uh, and we're in a situation where, um, you know, government stimulus can kind of ride it out for a little while. But uh, in terms of what's actually delivering genuine economic prosperity, um, we have sort of real structural issues as well as sort of conscious issues now in our society because, um, you know, even if you do suddenly feel really confident in your position financially and you do feel like going out and spending and stimulating the economy, um, sometimes there are literal physical restrictions on you doing that. Um, there are literally, you know, you cannot go to a cafe, you cannot go to a restaurant, uh, you cannot go to a lot of these local institutions that tend to be really, really good for recirculating money. Um, you know, an effect of it is, um, let's say a lot of people uh, might have gone to their local butcher uh, and their local greengrocer to buy their, you know, meat and veggies. You know, that sort of uh, tends to be a pretty positive thing for an economy, right? Um, you know, that butcher and that greengrocer can then go and pay their staff who can then go out and, you know, spend that money in the economy. And it tends to get recirculated pretty quickly, especially in the local economy. Now, on a larger scale, a lot of people are now shifting to just ordering shit from home. Uh, it's not necessarily quite as possible to order from these smaller institutions. It's tending to go to larger institutions like Amazon. Uh, and they don't quite have the same recirculating effect because, of course, they siphon off a fair amount of money uh, to held as profits to put into R&D uh, or to be sort of, you know, put back into their share value. Uh, now, of course, you know, eventually that has sort of positive effects much later on down the road, um, but it's not necessarily what we need right now. Um, so it's a bit of a difficult situation because sometimes, you know, all the fiscal stimulus in the world uh, is no good if you don't actually have anything to do with it, um, which I think is, is ultimately the case of what a lot of people are facing now. Uh, and also the other thing is all the fiscal stimulus in the world is great, but if people have genuinely lost their jobs uh, and there's no option for them to get it back because industries don't exist anymore, well, a lot of that stimulus is just going towards basic necessities. It's going towards paying rent, mortgages, utilities, stuff like that. Uh, it's not going into these marginal consumption um, pools where it actually will sort of boost the economy. Now, all of that is a very long-winded way of saying that um, if we can um, lift restrictions quickly and if we can do it in a way that's safe and if we can do it in a way that is... Um, not going to cause, you know, a relapse of, of more cases, you know, once we've sort of taken our foot off the, the accelerator, um, then, you know, our recovery could be quite all right. It's going to take a lot of stimulus. Uh, we're going to be feeling it for a little while, but we'll sort of probably get ourselves up and dust ourselves off. Uh, but I really don't foresee a reality where a country like America um, or even a country like, let's say, uh, Australia can fully get back to normal without a vaccine existing. Uh, and the longer we sort of stay in this situation, the more people are going to get squeezed, the more people's emergency funds dwindle down, uh, and the less effective these kinds of huge, enormous stimulus packages get. So um, it is ultimately one of those things where if we're answering that question, we're speculating on what the future holds for um, you know, dealing with the, the health crisis before we can properly deal with the economic crisis. Um, now, what that holds, that's anyone's guess. Me, personally, uh, I think it's going to be really bad. It, it, I think it most people are relatively confident in saying that we're probably looking at something worse than uh, worse than 2008 at this point. I mean, I know about recession, but are we already in depression? Am I right, guys? <laughs> oh, God, come on, man. Oh, <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> Don't be like that. You've got a new Xbox Explain video. I, I do have a good uh, um, a question, actually. Um, so uh, it's I don't it's like the last thing I'll ask to get us off topic, but it's actually concerning his question. Um, uh, so in a case like let's say you, right now um, it looks like that most people are going to be spending their stimulus is that they're getting from the government just on basic necessities. Uh, if you're in a position that um, that that you're able to keep your job and work more normal hours uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, and you're still getting stimuluses, like, what's the best option for that to use, like, in this situation, and, like, uh, what's the best thing to do with that money anyway? I think the best thing to do with that money is the same thing that is best to do with your money in any kind of situation. Uh, and it's basics, you know, personal finance, right? Make sure you have an Spend it on stocks. Oh, God. Uh, Make sure you have an emergency fund first. That's your foundation. That's the basis of any good financial plan to make sure you have that buffer. Um, you know, your your savings, your liquid assets that are there and ready to sort of use in, in the worst case kind of scenario, um, that's your suspension. That's what's going to get you through sort of turbulent times like this. Uh, normally, I sort of, you know, most people recommend about six months. Uh, and I tend to agree. Six months is good. 12 months if you really want to be conservative or if you're in a high-risk industry. Um, and beyond that, uh, invested into a nice sort of diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, potentially some real estate. Um, it's not uh, anything sexy, but it works, and that's why people recommend it. You're saying the politician Paul Ryan going on my TV screen telling me to buy silver dollars in case of a depression is not a good idea. Uh, well, look, I mean, if you wanted to add some, some precious metals to your portfolio, uh, look, I mean, they're not necessarily a growth thing. They're a sort of a stability uh, asset, but um, you know they don't really act like they once did. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Often I remember two thousand eight. That was the biggest thing that those people were touting about purchasing silver and gold. <laughs> so what I heard is, uh, in times of like deflation, uh, yes, those are good materials to have. But obviously, during economic growth, you do not want to hold on to gold or silver. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, the thing is. Uh, gold and silver have devalued in, in this crisis just like everything else did. They used to be a really great sort of reserve, um, you know, to, to, to hedge yourself against, you know, market downtrends or uh, or even inflation, but that might not necessarily be the case these days, unfortunately. Um, I think, weirdly enough, um, the, the best thing that you can probably have to hedge yourself against inflation uh, is debt. Uh, and it sounds so counterintuitive, but a good, healthy portfolio of debt probably... Um, you know, might actually be the best thing, so long as you are sort of continue to be in a position to service that debt. So um, you're saying that my credit card debt is actually a good thing? Oh God, hell no, not so, your credit card. Debt. <laughs> I, I think he's not missed the point. You buy, like, you buy a house, right, for like this, say, three hundred thousand or whatever, yeah. and you know the dollar doubles or decreases by half. You know, you pretty much owe half as much as when you first did. That's exactly right. And so normally, what you're saying normally is... Normally your house would be still be worth $600,000 because they tend to rise in line with inflation plus, you know, a little bit of extra market. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is I should take a $1 million mortgage out to get the debt. <laughs> uh, banks probably aren't... Uh, offering that at all. So so long as you can service the debt, um, when you're paying something like you know, 2 2.5% interest on a home loan over 30 years... Um, you know, realistically, it's actually not poor financial advice. Now, again, this isn't financial advice. Please don't sue me. But um, yeah, it's a relatively, uh, you know, um, it, it, the, the system sort of works. And that's why a lot of people do, you know, uh, even a lot of very, very wealthy people that could easily go out and buy a house in cash, uh, easily go out and fund their investment portfolios in cash will just access cheap credit because they know uh, it's a really effective way to get exposure to more things, um, but also to sort of hedge themselves against inflation. I personally believe the new economy is going to be based on topics. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I mean, everyone's entitled to their opinion. Um, I mean, here's the thing. Like, uh, I mean, I, I haven't checked my portfolio value in a while, but uh, I do have a lot of uh, um, investment in a good tangible material. It's oil. Um, I'm pretty. I haven't checked my value in a while, but I think I'll be good. <laughs> oh no! All right. All right. Oh no! Oh my god. Oh, oh, no. oh no. <laughs> oh no. Okay. Okay. Um uh, last thing off topic, but legitimately I don't have an oil. I actually do have a lot of stock in airline. <laughs> I'm like, I could, I, All right. I oh no. 
Well, I've got some bad news for you. Uh, anyway, that was all good fun, uh, but Lord of the Flies has a good question. Um, how does quantitative easing work when the value of the currency is pegged directly to gold? Does the Roman Empire have so much gold reserves? The answer is yes. Um, they had something like 200 million sesterces, which was the, uh, the currency of the empire at the time held in uh, the treasury in, in Rome. Uh, and yes, they could sort of uh, spread that out over uh, the empire. So yes. It uh, wasn't necessarily quantitative easing as, as we know it in the modern sense where you just sort of conjure up money out of nothing, um, but it did uh, effectively do the same sort of thing. Yeah, uh, when the when the empire split, did the eastern part of Rome maintain that banking system or did it just discard it? Uh, well, they kept a similar system. They had very, very, very um, developed banking protocols in the sense that people could deposit um, you know things in, in trusted institutions uh, and you know they would collect interest and invest it um, but it all sort of uh, slowly broke down of course when they you know uh, embraced uh, Christianity um, because of course that was you know the the, uh, the, the idea of lending and, and gaining interest over your fellow man was frowned upon it was usury um, so uh, the sort of height of it was around the time of you know of Jesus, you know the when BC sort of flipped over to AD, um, but it did sort of exist in in some form or another for uh, a good time after that until of course the the empire sort of slowly fizzled out into obscurity. So I have a question about the taxing that you had mentioned in there. You had said that the Romans had used a wealth tax. Uh, does an economy as a whole care how it's taxed, if it's a wealth tax or an income tax or anything like that, or does it not matter too much as long as the same amount is taken out? Well, if the same amount is taken out, then it doesn't matter, right? Um, but what it means is um, oftentimes if you're looking at a wealth tax versus an income tax, you're going to be taxing different people different amounts. Um, you know, an income tax sort of, um, in, a, in a sense, kind of, uh, well, I, I don't want to use the word punish, but uh, well, let's just go with it. It punishes people that are out there actually sort of generating uh, cash. You know, they're out there sort of actively contributing something. They're actively working a high-paying job or they're actively working a business that's turning a big profit. Uh, whereas a wealth tax um, tends to uh, impact more heavily the people that just sort of happen to sit on capital assets. Uh, you know, people that just happen to, to own. They're, they're wealthy from being wealthy. Uh, and a lot of people sort of say, oh, okay, well, look, realistically, those probably should be the people that we are we are taxing. Uh, you know, why would we tax someone that's out there, you know, that's working hard, making a profit, you know, building something for themselves, rather than this person here that, you know, may have just had it handed down to them and can kind of just sit on their big pile of, of assets and sort of live off, uh, live off that while, you know, pretty much actively contributing nothing themselves. Uh, now, the moral argument aside, um, if um, the effective net taxation is the same, um, but it's just distributed to different types of people, whereas high-income earners versus you know large capital uh, asset owners, um, there there would be some some distinct changes. Uh, it would in many ways sort of encourage people, uh, you know, to um, you know look at sort of systems where uh, they favour income over uh, capital appreciation. You know, a lot of our modern investing strategies are built on capital appreciation rather than income. Um, so if we then sort of let's say uh, turn to established businesses, let's say, that are um, paying out dividends year on year, that would be favourable to, let's say, investing in the next amazing startup that's going to uh, return uh, a thousand times your initial investment because, um, well, you're going to pay a lot of tax on that once it sort of uh, inevitably gets there. Um, and I think uh, that's probably going to be one of the big uh, sort of net effects. Now, um, that is, of course, purely mostly speculation, uh, and that is sort of in a perfect world. Uh, unfortunately, when you know people implement wealth taxes, uh, the truly wealthy—and I mean the you know the people that actually sort of would um, you know take a hunk of flesh out of their net worth if uh, you know if this was levied on them—they um, find ways around it. Unfortunately, they'll move to another country. They'll um, I don't know distribute it amongst sort of peers or. Um, you know, historically, that's just sort of been the way that they kind of get things done. Um, and look, I think if it was to be sort of levied in, let's say, a country like the United States, 
Uh, I'm actually not sure what would happen to um, you know truly truly wealthy individuals uh, and what they would do. Uh, I do sort of anticipate that you know, look, chances are um, a lot of them may very well just leave the country, um, you know, move abroad. But uh, of course, that's sort of speculation. So I hope that answered your your question. Um, I had a question. If uh, yeah, go ahead. So, so um, first of all, I'm not any. I don't have an economic background. That's so uh, I just wanted to know uh, how does taxes basically come full circle, full circle back to uh, common people basically. Um, I know a basic idea, but if you could just fill in some more details. Right. Okay. So it's the standard, um, like there's like basic cycles of money in the economy. Um, now, I mean, the most generic answer is, of course, uh, let's say you earn income from a business, you know, they're paying you a wage, uh, you'll pay, you know, an X percentage of that as, as tax to the government. So let's say it's 30%. Um, so you pay your 30% of your wage to the government, you beauty, they've got some extra money. Um, let's say it's $30,000. Now, um, they will then use that on, you know, goods and services that would not, normally would not otherwise be provided by the private sector. Uh, so things like public roads, public schools, uh, public health care, uh, if it's in a country that, that has that, um, you know, stuff that doesn't necessarily have a huge profit motive, uh, but does provide genuine benefit to a society. Uh, and that is sort of the first way it will come back to people. Uh, you know, of course, you know, you pay your taxes so that you can live in a society that's clean, um, that's safe, has emergency services, has, you know, usable roads, has public transport, uh, and, you know, has, a, let's say, a healthcare system if, if you do happen to get sick. So it comes to you sort of indirectly that way. Um, but of course, I think you're talking about more the actual sort of circulation of money. Uh, and there are sort of direct transfers that the government does. Uh, the first is, of course, welfare. You know, the government pays people that don't have employment or are in sort of more difficult situations, perhaps it's disability, um, perhaps they are unable to work for whatever reason, uh, perhaps it's like a pension, uh, and they sort of direct credits, there you go, money straight into their account. Uh, now they would eventually, of course, go out and spend money in local businesses and eventually, uh, you know, those business pay their employees and, and one of those businesses might be the business that you work for and hey, hooray, you, your money sort of eventually come full circle back to you. Uh, but the government also does other things like infrastructure projects where, uh, you know, realistically, it doesn't have its own cranes and all that sort of stuff to build them. So they will hire private contractors to do that. And the same sort of thing happens. They'll directly pay these private contractors that will directly pay, you know, tradesmen. Those tradesmen might want to go and buy something. Maybe they buy something from your shop where you're employed. Your employer gets money. That money they can then use to employ you so you can pay your taxes. Uh, and those are sort of the, the streams. Now, of course, there are, you know, in, in practice, of course, it's a, it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, you know, discretionary budgets and there are, um, you know, in, in many countries that have their own currency sort of systems in place that that's not necessarily uh, exactly how it works. Um, but that's the basic function. I hope that makes sense. Does that sort of answer your question? Can you sort of see that now? Sure, sure. Okay, beautiful. Um, can I ask a question? Yes, go ahead. Uh, of all the research you did, was there a single out-of-the-box Roman policy, economic or otherwise, that could work nowadays in a different world in a way that would be actually good and not just strange? Right. Uh, an economic policy that we don't really sort of have um, that could work, but it's kind of a bit weird and wonderful. Exactly. Rightio. Well, that's a, that's a pretty big ask um, and sort of a few things to ponder there. All right. Well, I think, hmm. Hmm. I mean, there's, nothing, just... there's nothing particularly coming to mind. But go ahead, Captain Locke. You got something? I mean, I was surprised at the their use of the wealth tax uh, rather than, because I, you know, I naively thought that like, oh, yes, it's going to be like trading and that kind of stuff. But the uh, wealth tax... Um, it was kind of like, that was surprising. Um, I think we should really bring that back. <laughs> I like the idea of... more economically progressive? Um, we don't, let's not, let's not, let's not attribute politics, uh, to a dead civilization. <laughs> so, 
the but let's not let's not attribute modern day politics politics political ideologies to uh, a system oh, that economically progressive, like an economically more left leaning view. I think it's interesting to look at Rome as the first instance of like a a UBI sort of because. Wait, they had this practice, at least after they conquered Egypt, that they were pretty much giving away food, bread and stuff in Rome for free to the citizens. And because of that, those citizens didn't actually need to spend their money on food, so they spent it on goods. And that actually, even the poor ones could afford to spend things on good, and that's developed trade and craftsmanship, etc., and boosted the economy basically. Okay, with sorry if I may interrupt with regards to this, this was I think what um, the Romans considered a grain depository of some description, where they had a book like three hundred thousand of Rome poorest people's names inside it, so those people could then go and get the grain in order to break out of because back then in ancient Rome the single most expensive thing that you would pay for is relief. so by reducing such a large it, He's cutting in it just makes it a lot easier for them to break out of that cycle um, but so, Salty, I, also uh, don't... I think your microphone's sorry. cutting in and out uh, a lot so we can't quite make out ah, what it is that you're asking I think uh, what would be ah, sorry about that Maybe just sort of type it out and uh, Captain Locke will be able to sort of read it. I know it's a little bit more annoying, um, but just so that we sort of can properly understand uh, understand your question as, as you're sort of asking it. Ah, okay, um, sorry if you guys couldn't hear earlier. Like I was saying, this was a this was a Roman yeah, initiative. Could you type it out? Could you type it out, please? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're asking, we're asking yeah. you to type it All out. Right. We, we cannot hear. <laughs> sorry, right. mate. Yeah, <laughs> you're cutting in and out so much that it's just, we hear like every other word. So apologies. Right, um, economic discussion it is yeah put it in put it in vc Which chat channel? and uh yeah we'll uh we'll, we'll make sure to read it out um the, the vc chat text channel and um yeah captain Lock will make sure to get on all right it. thank you no worries no worries thanks mate uh okay in the meantime while he's doing that um okay uh so uh, face asks uh what are the downsides to pumping stimuli to the citizens and business in terms of coming back to bite us currently in this economic downturn that could possibly end in a year or more is there such a thing as too much help for citizens? Yeah, Face, absolutely um, there is, and that's a really good question. So there's two things that are ultimately gonna happen from this. Um, the first is we're going to have to pay it back normally like you would pay back overspending. Right now, the government's literally out there on their you know, their credit card uh, and they're going they're going crazy. Uh, you know, they're, they're racking up a huge amount of debt so that they can sort of um, you know, make their way through this you know, pretty turbulent time. Um, but of course, that's not sustainable. Uh, you know, eventually you're going to have to repay those debts, and and oftentimes you know, repay those debts with interest, uh, and that sort of means that in the future we're going to have to spend more uh, than we, well, so we're going to have to sorry save more than we spend, because uh, at the moment we're spending much much more than we're 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 bringing in in tax. Um, so uh, of course, in the long term, that may not be sustainable. Now. In reality, for a country, especially like the United States, uh, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, given the way that their sort of you know, monetary system is structured, they can effectively conti continue to go into debt uh, more or less indefinitely, but you still pay for it one way. So you either pay for it by genuinely normally sort of making good contributions towards paying more taxes and spending less, or you pay for it through inflation. Um, now, uh, given the way that sort of taxes and, and everything seems to be going and the pressure towards lower taxes uh, even before um, you know sort of situations like this uh, I have a feeling it's probably going to be uh, more heavily paid for with inflation now controlled inflation isn't necessarily a bad thing um, but it is something that is probably going to be the case um, realistically so yeah um, there is such thing as, as too much help for citizens because uh, eventually of course um, you know you can give everyone in the, the world a million dollars, but soon that million dollars doesn't mean anything. Good question, though. 
uh, Lord of the Flies has been paying me with a bunch of questions. Uh, can you pick uh, that? Like, whatever the best one is. No, which one? Um. Uh, you've already answered the how does quantitative easing work with gold? Yeah, let's not do that. You've already done that one. Um. Uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of gold-backed currency versus fiat currency? Let's not answer that one. <laughs> I swear I didn't tell him to write that. I swear. <laughs> well. Uh, what or what are the quantitative or qualitative difference between an injection of fiat money into an economy versus the gold-backed currency? Uh, dude, you got. <laughs> you yeah. gotta stop asking about gold. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we'll answer that one, and then uh, and then we're we're cutting you off, Lord of the Flies. Too too many questions. I love the enthusiasm, but my goodness gracious me! Apparently, everyone was half as enthusiastic as you. Um, so the difference is, uh, if you have a fiat currency, you can basically print it forever. Um, there's nothing necessarily stopping you until you I don't know run out of ink or in our modern world digits on a computer screen, right? Um, where if it's gold backed, then it is genuinely gold backed. It's not fractionally gold backed. Um, you know, you only have so much gold. Um, so that does sort of limit the effectiveness that it can possibly be or the extent to which you can uh, continue to pump uh, money out there into the economy. Uh, and now especially sometimes that was a limiting factor because if we look at, let's say, what Tiberius did in Rome, uh, he still wanted that money back. And it was, you know, gold. It was, you know, there you go, have some, have some nice shiny discs. Uh, and, you know, realistically you couldn't create that unless you go and find a new gold mine. Um, so that means if it wasn't controlled properly, uh, they'd be in a situation where in three years' time, when he expected all that money back, they'd be right back at it again. Suddenly, oh shit, you know, everyone needs this money because they desperately need to pay it back to the Roman government. No one has it. Um, so they start selling their assets, their land, their goats, their slaves all over again. Um, and we get the good disaster. Uh, whereas in our modern system, we can just sort of continue to keep on printing money. Uh, and that kind of alleviates the problem. So, good question. I like that one, actually. Uh, I have a question, actually, uh, about the US dollar. You Go said ahead. that um, the US government, as opposed to any other country on the planet, can't afford to take on more debt. And I'm assuming that's because uh, the US dollar has so much demand on the global scale or the global level, right? But my question to you is why and what would it take for the US dollar to actually lose its uh, global status, lose its trust, basically? Yeah, so uh, a lot of it is the power of being the default, the default go-to if you need a, an in-between exchange. Um, and look, there's there's some structural things, um, you know, things like Bretton Woods that determined that, um, you know, uh, US dollars is basically the settlement currency for most international transactions. It's kind of the logical go-between, um, and as well, it's used to thing. You know, it's used to trade things like oil um, and a lot of derivatives, and, and most sort of international contracts are backed in uh, US dollars. Uh, in the same way that most international business is done in English, it's just the agreed-upon metric. You know, that's sort of the, the global default, uh, and that does, of course, mean that there's a lot of demand for it. Uh, in the same way that outside of um, you know, your home currency, and, uh, and apologies if your home currency is US dollars, uh, if you were given an option, it's like, hey, I'm gonna give you $1,000 or the equivalent of $1,000 in your home currency, um, but you have to pick a currency that isn't your home currency, what are you going to pick? That was a genuine question, what would you pick? So I'm supposed to pick a currency that is not my home currency, but not the US dollar as well? No, no, it can, it can be the US dollar, it can be anything but your home currency. Uh, and they're going to give you an equivalent of $1,000 in it. What would be your logical first choice? Well, probably the US dollar because of the the, uh, the trust that most people have in it. And so I can definitely trust that it will hold its uh, value. Exactly. You're going to get it. You're going to have it. Mm. You know that most, uh, you know, money exchange places are going to have, you know, uh, exchanges for US dollars. Uh, you know that the price is relatively stable by the time you get to the monetary exchange. It's not going to have doubled in value or gone to zero. Uh, and you know that, look, you can keep it in institutions that are relatively safe because people have a lot of faith in, uh, you know, the American economy. 
Uh, and of course, hey, look, even if worse comes to worse and you can't trade it for your local currency, you kind of know, hey, look, realistically, I'm sure I could probably go out and buy something with this thousand US dollars because, well, you know, everyone else is going to have the same assumption that I have. Uh, you know, it's not my first choice. I'd prefer my home currency, but it's it's the next best thing. And, you know, realistically, if someone offers that to me, I'll probably take it if it means I can do a bit of business. Um, and that's realistically the value um, of, of the US dollar uh, above sort of the more sort of intangible, or sorry, the more tangible thing, sorry. I actually have a good example of that. When I went to Europe, I, uh, I actually managed to barter at a shop to use a US dollar instead of euros because I was out of euros. There you go. Yeah, and I'm sure they were just fine with it. They probably charged you, they probably, they probably gouged your eyes out to make it happen. Uh, you probably paid massively over the odds, but, uh, you know, they, they were sort of just fine and they were sort of happy to go about. I wouldn't, uh, be, su- I wouldn't be surprised if I did. Classic yeah. arbitrage. Classic arbitrage. But according to you, just off the top of your head, what do you think needs to happen in order for people to lose trust in the dollar? Uh, I mean, the way it's set up that way, I'm guessing it's because the current monetary system globally uh, uh, was the way it's structured was basically influenced by the United States. And so they got the, the advantage of, you know, uh, putting their dollar in like that when most of the economy was, most of the world was, you know, recovering from war. They, they, they kind of use that to their advantage. That's why it still persists. But my question is, what would it take for that to actually change? Yeah, so I think it would be a few things. Uh, if there's obviously if there's a period of hyperinflation or something like that that massively destabilizes the value of the currency, um, people would obviously look for alternatives because it can't be trusted. It, it's not stable, uh, and that's sort of sort of big things that that are there. Uh, outside of that, of course, you know, sort of the eventual degradation of the uh, the USA. Uh, you know, if the United States becomes a sort of a less influential society, let's say akin to um, the British Empire. Um, I think it would sort of fall out of favour in the same way that, you know, pounds have, have done that. Um, you know, they're, they're probably still a, a decent currency, but it's certainly not people's go-to these days anymore like it, it once was back in the day. Um, or, um, you know, sort of some combination of both. Uh, or, you know, just sort of some kind of universal alternative coming along. Uh, no one can really predict the future, but historically it's been either, um, you know, complete debasement of the currency and, and all sort of trust in it is alleviated or eliminated, sorry, uh, or, you know, the, the empire just sort of fades away uh, to, to hold sort of less clout over the world uh, and with that sort of a, a more sort of influential sort of entity takes its place. Hey, maybe that'll be, maybe that'll be China. Who, who really knows? They're certainly doing their best to push their currency out into the world. Well, I have a question. This is kind of like the, with the last thing you mentioned with China taking over as a currency, because this is a debate that I've been having with some friends, which there's like the argument that a lot of people don't like the control the U.S. have over the world because the dollar's the default currency. So they're going to go to China. But I'm kind of of the opinion that you can't really trust them because everyone knows they manipulate their currency like crazy to benefit their own country China's not the only one that manipulated their currency though everyone does but like i personally see it as china manipulates it far more than most countries normally uh they do exactly and, and i think uh you've got to understand the process between you know in which they actually sort of do that uh and that sort of involves them holding on to a lot of of currency reserves right um, so that, if anything, the, the fact that they have the ability to do that, uh, if anything, is, is probably sort of more of an indicator that, um, you know, realistically, they probably have a more secure currency because they ultimately determine where it's at. Um, so, you know, a lot of people say, obviously, that's bad. And it's, you know, it's unfair in the sense that, you know, maybe they do that to, um, you know, indirectly subsidize their own sort of domestic businesses. Um, but uh, it doesn't necessarily degrade from the idea that, you know, this could be a, a nice sort of universal currency. If anything, it probably helps it because you can kind of say, oh, well, look, you know, um, hey, China, Chinese RMB is the next best thing from US dollars because I kind of know it's going to mean, uh, you know, this many RMB equals this many US dollars. And I kind of have that as a nice fixed exchange um, so long as the Chinese government keeps on sort of doing what they do. A quick follow-up question actually to what he just asked. Uh, in terms of manipulating currency, is there any other way to do that other than you know printing more or printing less to either weaken it or strengthen it? 
uh, yeah, you, you hold foreign currency reserves, significant foreign currency reserves. Um, so let's take uh, the Chinese RMB uh, and the US dollar, okay? Um, now, let's assume that there are no other currencies in the world uh, and the Chinese government just wants to make sure that their currency is worth half as much as um, the US dollar. So what it would do uh, is it would make sure it has a huge supply of American currency. And of course it has, you know, basically an unlimited supply of its own currency. So uh, no worries, it's all good there. Now where it gets that currency from is of course it needs a trade surplus with the United States if it's importing, um, you know, more, if it's exporting more goods than it imports, of course, sorry. Um, it will be sort of receiving these US dollars into the country. So it's gonna build up a nice big stockpile of them. What it does with that stockpile is basically become a market maker. So it will make a market where it says, you know what, you can buy and sell, you know, one US dollar equals 0.5 RMB, uh, sorry, equals two RMB, uh, and one RMB equals 0.5 US dollars. Fantastic. Now, if I am a seller of RMB, I am not going to accept anything less than 0.5 US dollars because I know if, you know, someone undercuts me there, well, whatever, I'm just gonna go out and sell it to the government. Um, does the same thing, right? May as well do that. And if I am a buyer of RMB and I've got my one US dollar, I'm not going to accept anything less than two RMB for my one US dollar because I know if someone offers me less than that, well, I can just go to the government. What this means is that the government comes such a powerful uh, institution and it facilitates trades both ways to the sense that no one would trade at any other price because the government always offers the best option um, to either the buyer and or the seller. So the logical, it creates the equilibrium and that's you know, where it has this power. Now, of course, uh, the market forces dictate that if, uh, let's say, um, US dollars genuinely are more valuable than that, they would uh, eventually sort of run low on these um, US dollars because you know they might have genuinely more power genuinely more power and people would be, you know, it, it's in people's best interest to, to buy up US dollars using RMB. Um, but that's okay because they continue to get this inflow from their trade surplus. Um, so that's effectively how it works. Now, in reality, of course, it's a lot more complicated because um, there is, you know, hundreds of currencies out there and, and China does sort of work in, in a lot of them. Um, but so long as you have a good, you know, powerful sort of pile of money you can you can determine what price your your currency is at so like to oversimplify simply uh, setting exchange prices as well as having the foreign currency supply to back that up that's right pretty much yeah all right thank you that's okay um now it is super late and i am super tired so i'm going to take one more question hopefully something related to rome uh, and then I am going to go to bed, so sorry to, to take it up a little bit early. Actually, um, yeah, yeah. So, so anyone that has something specifically related to Rome, speak now or forever hold your peace. Um, and then I am going to go to sleep. I have a question. Go ahead. So, would Rome be able to expand its borders to very profitable region? Would this system have continued working? Well, yeah, if it can continue. Well, yeah, to... if it can continue to. Guys, uh, just a nice reminder Talk. to um, mute your microphone to, uh, by default because that is really annoying. Thank you. Um, all right. So, um, yeah, so now they sort of ultimately sort of, uh, for a lot of times, fueled their empire on conquest and um, not necessarily plundering money so much as, uh, you know, sort of setting up these systems as, you know, profitable little institutions to feed back to, uh, to the capital city. Now, um, would it continue to, to go on forever? Well, there was an ultimate limitation. Um, sometimes it become you know it became so large and unwieldy that you know communication happened so slow between one you know Rome and, and one end of the empire that uh, it just became sort of untenable to you know really control it. And I think if they continue to expand these borders and expand these borders, it would kind of come to the effect that uh, you know if someone was genuinely looking after a really wealthy region, you know, sort of a local government administrator. Um, they would have every incentive to, you know, just kind of claim this region as their own and, uh, you know, maybe take some, uh, uh, you know, some of the wealth for it and kind of claim themselves an independent state. Uh, and of course, you know, that 
actually happened in, in Rome, um, you know, when the sort of capital sort of shifted to the east. Uh, and I think that is ultimately the limiting power. And if you look at the map of, of Rome, you sort of see that, you know, there's Rome right there in the centre of the empire and it's almost like a circle or like an oblong circle, um, sort of equidistant from around uh, Rome. And that's just because um, you have to sort of consider the, the limitation of, of information. Uh, you know, sometimes by the time, I don't know, some, some person staged a coup and, and claimed themselves a sovereign emperor, um, it might take three months for that news to get back to Rome, three months for them to assemble an army, three months for them to march that army back out there. Uh, you know, that time, you know, they've had sort of a, almost a year at that point to, to get themselves uh, ready for that. So it kind of puts them in a, in a difficult sort of situation to really ex keep on expanding indefinitely. Um, and I think, um, you know, most sort of historians sort of tend to agree with that. Um, you know, civilizations got larger and larger. Um, the looser control you had on all your constituents, uh, especially in, in situations where, you know, technology wasn't quite there to facilitate fast communication. Thanks. No worries. Okay, um, so apologies about sort of making this one slightly shorter than normal, guys. Uh, it is just extremely late and it's been one of those uh, one of those sort of wild days. But I did hope you enjoy the video um, and everyone on the YouTube live stream as well. Uh, if you did, you know, make sure to give it a like and thumbs up and give it a comment. Uh, oh, because surprisingly, it's actually doing really badly. Out of all of the videos I've put up recently, it's the, the worst one. So uh, that makes me sad. Um, it's not topical enough. Yeah, perhaps. Who knows? Well, it's okay, anyway. I like it. Yeah, well, go, go and comment on it or something. Or, I don't know, do something funky okay, with the YouTube algorithm. But make sure to watch the entire thing there as well. Ah, you know, maybe we're just hacking the system. But anyway, um, don't do that, guys. I'm only joking. Um, so, uh, they were expecting a video on Kim Jong-un. Oh, uh, yeah, well, there you go. Maybe another one on... Uh, North Korea is still my uh, sort of most popular video ever on the channel. So uh, maybe I'll re-explore it, you know, Mr. 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 Vegetable yeah, I think there. I after, after news of Kim Jong-un, uh, you know, surfaced. Hmm. The economics of being a vegetable. Good lord. <laughs> All right, on, on that bombshell, good night, everyone. And good night to everyone on the YouTube live stream as well. Thanks for tuning in, guys.